stake investing in asset management firms is expected to be a $500 billion business. We are joined by John Little today from Alderwood Capital, the managing partner and founder of that business. John, welcome. Thank you, Chip. Good to see you. It's good to have you on. This is Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. And this is going to be interesting because taking a JP stake in asset management firms is a way to generate a fairly high level of run rate income, right? That's really critical to insurance companies today, right? But what it would be really helpful, I think, because it would help me a lot in terms of kind of what direction we go here. Give me a little bit on your background and how that background lends itself to doing what you're doing today in terms of taking stakes in asset management firms. Sure. I mean, I've been in the asset management business for more than 30 years, you know, from being a junior analyst to running large asset management businesses. So, you know, over the years, I've worked for Fidelity, JP Morgan. And then I was 10 years at Mellon, which later became Bank of New York Mellon, ending up as the vice chairman and CEO of the international asset management business there. I then founded a firm called Northfield Capital in 2010, backed by one of the world's wealthiest families. And we built that business up to around $91 billion of assets under management uh, from taking stakes in a number of successful asset managers. And then in 2020, I sold out of the firm, having left at the end of 2019, and set up Alderwood about 12 months ago with the intention effectively doing the same thing as we've been doing before. And it's not just me. It's a group of people that I've worked with really for the last 20 years have joined me in Alderwood. So we all work together at, at BOM Mellon. We all work together at North Hill. And it's the same group of people with me here at Alderwood. Yeah, I knew you had consistency of team there, and, and I, I think that's a really solid story and important to investors. What are you actually investing in? I know that you take stakes in asset managers. I also know just anecdotally that there have been insurance companies who have done similar things. Can you kind of walk us through what you invest in? Yeah, and it's worth mentioning how we got to this because, of course, at BMY Mellor, we weren't necessarily taking stakes in asset managers for the revenue, we were taking stakes as a strategic business, actually buying in capabilities that we didn't have or, you know, interesting asset classes or styles of investing to round out our multi-boutique asset management business. Yeah. And, and Stuart, it is fair to say that a number of insurance companies have probably been investing for 30, 40 years. Either they built up their in-house asset management team and then decided to go out on the acquisition trail. Well, they found it helpful to take stakes in people with specialist skills so they can deploy capital rather than build up an expertise in-house, which is not always that easy in an insurance company, is to recognize that certain specialist skills, certain asset classes lend themselves to a boutique specialist. So taking a stake in somebody and then giving them some capital to manage as part of the package is a way of you know deploying capital effectively and getting some expertise without necessarily having to buy the whole firm or build it up in-house, which is quite difficult. It makes sense. We were talking, I did a New York CFA Society's Asset Owner Series yesterday with Eric Kirsch, global CIO at Aflac, and he was talking about the same thing, that they have a, an in-house capability, but for specialty asset classes like this one, and I think it's a very good point, it's very difficult to build up a team internally that has the expertise necessary to, to buy into this asset class. So what are some ways that you're taking positions yeah. I mean, you're right about the history. I mean, in actual fact, one of the positions that we took in 
Denmark in Copenhagen in 2016 was a business that effectively spun out of an insurance and banking business. And if you look at many of the boutiques that we look at, most of them possibly started their life as a team that worked inside a large insurer or a large bank or a large multi-financial services conglomerate, and then decided that they preferred life in a boutique environment where they were on their own, where they had more control over their own destiny. So what essentially we're doing is we are taking stakes in the equity of, they can either be private limited companies, they can be partnerships, P-Corps in the US jargon, effectively taking an equity stake in those businesses. Typically, these businesses are quite well established. So we don't look at startups. We don't look at businesses which are at a very, very early stage of their development. Quite a lot of the businesses we look at in one of our main categories of investment is, is what we call succession capital. So this is where you've got a firm that might be 20 or 25 or even 30 years old. In the example I used earlier, two or three people spin themselves out of an insurance company in the Midwest in the 80s or the 90s set themselves up in a boutique. The boutique is very successful. They build a great business, a nice franchise in a specialist area. It could be US small caps or could be in credit investing. And they get to a point where they need a new shareholder. They don't need a new shareholder because they've decided to give up doing what they do or to cash in, but they need it normally because one of them has reached the point where they want to retire for family reasons or you know, just has reached an age where they don't want to be working full-time in the business. Or it could be that you've got an early strategic backer that wants to get out because they backed them 25 years ago and now you know, interest change and they need to sell out. And you sometimes find these businesses are pretty valuable. You know, Despite being relatively small, it could be 20 or 30 people in the firm. If they've done a good job, the business can be worth $100 million, can be worth $150 million. And you know, buying out one of your partners or an early strategic backer for 25 or $50 million or even 75 or $100 million is not always very easy, even if you've been successful. So we provide a solution. And, and these businesses you know, aren't necessarily in possession of a lot of choices. So for example, if you're a specialist boutique, you're quite mature, you might be growing a little, but you don't have you know, a big J curve of growth ahead of you. Typically, you know, if you think about it, these aren't businesses that can IPO. These aren't businesses that will probably want to sell themselves back to an insurance company or, or a bank because that's where they escape from back in the day. They're also not businesses that are particularly suitable to the classic private equity investment where they want something where they can invest in it and it'll do 6x in three years or whatever with a lot of leverage. And so actually, these businesses find themselves in need of an investor to come in and take out their partner that's leaving. And there aren't a lot of choices for them. So the GP stake investing business started off in its original format really in the conventional asset management business and became a solution for maturing businesses. Now, it's grown from there to a point where a lot of the action seems to be these days in the world of PE, where it's people buying quite large stakes in very large PE firms. But the origin was back in the idea of um, replacing early strategic backers or replacing retiring partners in specialist boutiques. But Stuart, succession capital isn't the only opportunity. That's a big part of what we do. And we typically expect on a mature portfolio for it to be around 50% of the opportunity set. But there are also two other opportunity sets that we look at. The second one is what we call acceleration capital. So this isn't startup firms. This is firms that might typically be three, five, six, seven years of age. They've got going. They've reached the point where they're profitable. They've got an AUM size that is making money. But either then an early backer who gave them some capital in the early stages now wants to sell out. So it's similar to the succession capital opportunity, but an earlier stage. Or it can also be that, you know, if you think about it, when you're growing an asset manager through those years when you're not profitable, when you're building up the business, you're normally plowing every penny back into the firm. 
And at some point, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, at what point are we going to pay ourselves a dividend and actually, you know, stop self-financing everything? It may also be that they realize that they only have the capability to self-finance at a very slow pace. So typically, we would come into those situations in an acceleration capital situation to provide some capital potentially to seed a new vehicle. It could be to expand the firm, to do some hiring, you know, without having to rely on self-generated profits. So we take a strategic stake to help really accelerate the growth of the firm. It's it's interesting because it's akin to a mutual insurance company where they really don't have access to capital, where a stock company can do that. And you're basically giving them access to capital that's pretty tough to get. Plus, you get the joke as far as how an asset management company is supposed to run. And in terms of escaping those larger, I mean, that's what you did, right? You left a big firm to go out and start one. So that makes sense. I mean, in effect, you're eating your own cooking, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and these businesses are very asset-like. You know, I mean, despite the fact that these boutiques can easily be worth two, $300 million, when you boil it down, there are no net assets. There are desks, chairs, paper clips, PCs, docking stations, and, and a couple of pieces of bad art. You know, it's, it's nothing more than that. So really, all the value is in the firm and the franchise. So, you know, if they wanted to borrow to buy out an early backer or a strategic partner or whatever, no bank would lend them the money you know, because it, it just isn't a sort of classic sort of concept. So so that's why this whole market grew up, particularly in the acceleration capital and in the succession capital space. I ought to mention the third category. It's a little more unusual, but it's one where we've achieved some success in the past. This is what we call liberation capital, slightly tongue in cheek, but it's um, your listeners have probably watched and some of them maybe participated in these, these sort of huge numbers of mega mergers that have gone on over the last few years. And you know, personally, I'm a critic of the value that's been created by a lot of these asset management mergers, you know, creating ever bigger businesses. And it's not clear that they create great shareholder value. What you get eventually in these half a trillion, one trillion firms is little pockets of investment excellence in a particular asset class or a style of investing. It might be infrastructure, it might be commercial real estate or private credit that are part of a bigger conglomerate, but they're not very happy. You know, they might have been on their fifth or sixth business card in 10 years. You know, they've gone through their seventh cost-cutting round and, you know, synergy round. They may have had hiring freezes at a time when their business is actually growing. And so generally, they're not that happy. So what we find is, particularly at times of stress, we will find opportunities to sponsor the management buyout. Not of a team. It's not a team lift out, but it's almost a purchase of a unit from within a bigger firm. And we've done a couple of those in the past. If I can mention one, you know, back in 2009, we bought Insight, which was the LDI specialist that was stuck inside originally HBOS. HBOS was a bank that went effectively bankrupt in the UK. It got rescued by Lloyds. Lloyds needed to sell assets to shore up the balance sheet. And we were able to swoop and purchase what was a world-class capability for an exceptional price. And, and that's been one of our best investments in our 20-year history. So we think those are quite interesting. That They don't come along very often, but when they come along, they're often amazing purchases. That helps me. And I guess when I let off, I said, talked about GP stake investing, right? So it's a term that I haven't heard a whole lot of because what you do is is specialized, right? And we also talked about the idea that this sort of asset class generates a high level of current income, which is of interest to insurers, obviously. But there's also been a fair amount of money raised in that space. Do you think it's still attractive? And do you think there's still an opportunity? 
Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I guess I would say that because I'm because I'm investing in the space. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. a little like it's a little like asking a real estate agent if property prices are going to go up. But um, right. but you no, know, but but joking apart, yes. I mean, the estimate that you mentioned at the start of this piece was one that was mentioned by one of our competitors. I have no idea if I agree with it or not, or how they got to the number of five hundred billion. But we believe that it's an industry that has an awful lot of capacity. What we don't think is that the best opportunity, though, is in the large deals. So we're seeing quite a lot of activity in the top end of the space, which is P firms, uh, big buyout firms, you know, selling 10% or 20% or 30% of their equity to a, a firm that's in the GP stake business. And I'm not knocking that. I think that's an important part of the industry, but it's not what we do. We see the opportunity more in the mid-tier of the market. So we're unashamedly a mid-cap value investor. With a lot of you know, PE and private investment opportunities, quite often the action is away from the main fray. So you know, we see some of the GP stakes being sold in big you know, marquee name PE firms whose names everybody knows. It's great, but those sales are being done at multiples that we think are too high. We think that they're being done largely because someone that runs a PE firm says, look, if someone's going to come along and give me a chunk of money for a piece of my firm and the value they ascribe to it is higher than the value I ascribe to it, I'll take their cash. That's fine. It's a reasonable trade. We see much more value in the smaller and mid-sized firms, you know, very well established, nicely successful. They're generally quiet unheralded firms that you know are not particularly well known to the public those are the firms that have less options those are the firms that probably value doing a deal with the right investor rather than the price and they're also firms where they themselves value the partner that's coming in the culture you know because quite often we're dealing with a founder you know the founder other than their marriage and the birth of their kids, it's probably the most important thing in their lives was the founding of their company 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. The idea that they'd sell a piece of it to the highest bidder and carry on working there and have all their colleagues and the, the, the people they've mentored over the last 20 years work with somebody who just paid the highest price is an anathema to them. What they want to do is they want to do a deal with somebody that they can look at the cross the boardroom table for the next 10 years, whatever the investment horizon is, and feel they did the right thing. Someone who understands the business, that knows how it works, can add some value, can sometimes challenge them, You know, can generally bring some extra expertise to the boardroom table. We think that's more valuable than being deal six in fund five. You know, which just doesn't appeal to these guys. And one of the reasons we have a lifetime cap of $2 billion on our strategy, we think that's the most that we can invest over the next 10 years. You know, some of our competitors have got individual funds that are four or five times the size of our lifetime capacity. That's fine. But in the space in, in which we're at, we'd rather deploy a smaller amount of capital and deploy it well than raise too much and then struggle to spend it. So we have a, more of a focus. When you look across these opportunities, right, are there particular asset classes that are more attractive to you generally? And what about geography? Our audience is primarily U.S., but we have probably 30% of our audience is non-U.S. So how do you see the opportunity set in both asset class and geography? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, let's do this backwards and, and take the geography point first, if I may. I mean, we've been involved in deals in the U.S., pretty much all over the U.S., Brazil, Australia, various parts of Asia, India, 
Europe, the UK. So, so we're pretty comfortable operating globally. So, you know, pretty much any global developed markets. And, and, you know, I mean, our first deal that we were involved in as a team was in 2001, which was in the Middle East. So we know the uh, markets really, really well. So geographic markets, the only places we wouldn't go are markets where we just don't think that you can get reasonable title to the assets. So, I mean, I'm thinking of places like Russia or China, where we just don't feel that the governance is sufficiently developed enough for us to be able to take a stake in somebody, give them 50 million, and expect our governance rights to be respected. So, other than that, we'll operate pretty much anywhere. In terms of asset classes, it's probably easier that I, first of all, describe what we don't do. So, as I said, we don't look at PE. PE firms are great. They're great deal makers. They're smart people. They make money. But we find that it's less of an investment process, more of a leveraged and a deal-making process, whereas we prefer people that have a describable, understandable investment process. So PE is out. We exclude anything beta-orientated. You know, we're not going to be in the ETF space or trying to compete with Vanguard or State Street to find somebody who does beta better than they do. You know, those things are out. And then finally, we don't look at a few things. We don't look, for example, at high-frequency trading because we don't think there's a social good attached to it. And indeed, there isn't really an investment process behind it. And finally, we struggle with global macro because we find that global macro is normally a little bit of a trust-me process. I mean, no matter how well it's described scientifically, we find it hard to understand how a macro investment process will actually perform under most market conditions. So we normally walk away from them. Everything else is of interest to us. Long-only equity, particularly focused equity strategies that are non-benchmark, activist strategies, infrastructure, private credit, distressed, high-yield anything with alpha attached to it. Now, the ones that are particularly keen on are the stuff like infrastructure, private credit, focused global equities, You know, because we feel that there's a real premium in the high quality firms in those areas. And we find that they're hard to find businesses in those categories, but when you find them, they're such great businesses that we want to own. So one of the things that we see and hear about all the time is fee compression. Yes. Right. And so, you know, particularly in the insurance industry where you've got massive core bond portfolios, the price or the fee for asset management services, all of that stuff's getting compressed. How does that translate? What's your take? I'm sure you've got a view on spread compression. It's also been our observation that firms that are in the more alpha and more specialized classes have more pricing power than some of the more, what I would refer to as more kind of mainstream strategies. Can you talk a little bit about fee compression and how you think about it? I think that's an excellent question, Stuart. I mean, first of all, you know, and this is probably quite a controversial comment. I mean, you know, the asset management industry is completely unrealistic in what it expects in terms of fees and in terms of the market environment. You know, we live in an industry where the average asset manager has earned a 35% profit margin year after year on average since 1990. This is an incredibly profitable business. So, you know, 35% is the average profit margin. That's in a universe of 100 firms that we track that was put together by Boston Consulting and Sandra O'Neill. Within that industry, a lot of firms that have not got a great strategy, that are not particularly great performers. So, that's the average profit margin. Now, 35% as a profit margin in any other industry would be regarded as sector leading. 
That's the average in our industry. And to give you an idea, in 2009, you know, after the GFC, you know, the average firm in that survey earned 28% profit margin when most banks and most insurance companies were struggling to make any money at all. So let's park the first part. This is a really profitable business that we're in. And so when people talk about fee compression, what they mean is from utterly crazy levels down to fairly high levels. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about farming or commodities or you know manufacturing cars where people are happy to make a 5% margin in a good year. This is a blessed industry. But it's blessed for another reason, which is that you know we're in an industry that's constantly expanding. So not only do we earn dying industry or mature industry type profit margins, but we're actually in an industry that's a growth industry. So you think about 30 years ago, what the listeners to this podcast will have been investing in, you know, they will not have been investing in private credit because private credit really didn't exist 30 years ago. Now it's the dominant method of lending to corporates in the US. Think about infrastructure. Infrastructure barely existed in the US 30 years ago. Now it's a huge mainstream asset class. ILS, investing in insurance, life risk or non-life risk is a huge asset class. Think about all the other things, climate, you know, wind, solar, you know, impact investing, sustainable investing, litigation, financing, royalties, all these, this huge vista keeps on changing and adding another asset class, another means of investing to the universe. And then finally, to your other point, Stuart, is that, yeah, we believe fundamentally that specialists will rule the world. Well, actually, the specialists will rule the world. At the other end of the spectrum, the the giant behemoths will also rule the world. But everything in between will die. So we only look at specialist boutiques. We like our businesses to do one thing, have one investment process, one asset class, and do it really, really well. We find that there's a whole bunch of academic research that we've done and that others have done that we've tapped into that shows that specialized managers always outperform generalists. And those firms don't struggle to get paid for what they do because they're not normally scrabbling around looking for clients. We find that it's the big generalist managers who have 45 products of which 30 are distinctly average that struggle to charge decent fees because most of what they do is average. And average doesn't get you paid. So there's been some high profile endowments and institutions that have said they don't like GP stake investing because they believe that an investment manager's equity should be owned by people managing that business and that there may be a misalignment of interest if they sell a stake to an outside party. Can you talk a little bit about that criticism, if you will? Yeah, I think it has an element of truth to it. I mean, you know, we ourselves believe that ultimately the best structure for an asset manager is if everybody working in the firm owns the firm between them and that's the only ownership they have. I just think it's somewhat unrealistic in practice because, you know, most firms these days, you know, it's quite a struggle to get a firm started up to get it to the point where it's got a three-year track record and consultants are prepared to start backing you and, you know, bigger institutional clients can sometimes take 12, 18 months, two years to look at you and decide to invest with you. So, you know, you need a decent amount of finance to get a firm running these days and you need some seed capital. So, I mean, you know, unless the, the two or three individuals that start the firm are very wealthy from day one, they're going to struggle to do that on their own. So, they normally have to bring in some outside backing. So, straight away, you've got some external backing in firms. Many firms these days set up with some sort of external shareholder. The other thing is that it doesn't kind of recognize reality. I mean, I, I know what they're getting at. Some of the high-profile endowments have said, look, if ever one of our managers sells any equity, then we're out. But if you've got three partners all in their 60s, 
or you know, one in their 60s and two in their 50s, you know, the 60-year-old's allowed to retire. And ultimately, what they should have done 20 years ago or 30 years ago when they set up the firm was come up with a mechanism for just recycling the capital through some form of annuity system, a bit like law firms do, you know, where a retiring partner gets paid for a few years some of the income, and then they just relinquish their rights to capital value. But you have to set that up on day one. If you don't set up on day one, 25 years is no good saying, well, that, I wish we'd done that. You know, <laughs> The fact is that if the firm doesn't get a solution to the problem, it's going to shake itself apart trying to come up with something that works or the retiring partner is going to get restless and say, look, I need to get paid, guys. I want to retire. I want to go and spend time on the beach. I don't want to have my cash locked up in a firm that I'm not working in. So we think you know, a sensitive and sensible solution to that problem is actually a reflection of reality. Interestingly enough, we are a minority equity investor. If ever our management teams want to sell more of their equity to somebody else, then we also believe that we should sell at the same time because we never want to find ourselves owning more equity than management. Going forward, we want management to own more equity than us. So we know that they are committed to the business and that we are not the first ones standing in the way of a problem. And it's funny you say that because I was at an asset management firm that this exact thing happened, right? Where there was a founding partner who was older and it created some consternation because the young guys are driving revenue and attracting new assets and the the older partner is taking out a huge share and it's hard to find capital and get that to work right, you know, right? Because you've got people who are, they want their turn, right? But at the end of the day, to your point, you know, you're reaching your pocket and, you know, gee, there's not 50 million bucks sitting there. So I've actually witnessed this like firsthand and, and I understand the sort of situations that you're talking about. What do you see as the downside, right? It can't be a one-sided trade. What's the downside? Yeah, it's a good point. So the returns are excellent and the income that you get from investing in GP stakes is is superb if you get it right. But let's be clear, there is a significant downside. I, mean, I think of it a little like investing in distressed debt or high yield debt. You know, you get a great coupon and unlike those asset classes, you also got a lot of potential for capital growth, but you're being paid an excess return for a reason. So as I mentioned to you earlier, Stuart, you know, these businesses don't have a lot of fixed assets. You know, if you're lending on a building at the end of the day, if the management screws up, you've still got a building there that you can take possession of. We're often, you know, laying out fifty million dollars or $100 million against the business whose only fixed assets are desks and chairs. So, you know, the downside from what you buy in at and what you could get in a very, very bad scenario is awful. It's a big gap. What that means is that you need to know what you're doing. So we spend an awful lot of time asking ourselves a few simple questions. I mean, firstly, you know, we need to get to know them well. So we never enter auctions because if we enter an auction, you know, we've got three or six weeks to get to know a management team and to make a bid. We can't do that. We need three months, six months. Sometimes, I mean, we've actually invested people we've known for three, four years. And some of the first deals that we do as a team at Alderwood will be people that we've already known and met before. And we've kept close to them. We've kept in contact with them. They still have the problem. They still need to solve it. So the best risk control that we have is never ever buy from a hurried seller because a hurried seller is a worried seller. And they know more about their business than we do. So we just can't take the risk that someone is a hurry to, to get the check is normally in a hurry for a reason. So we'll spend an awful lot of time doing due diligence. We always have to understand the reason why somebody wants the money as well. Back to my earlier point, you know, sometimes in the GP stake business in the private equity, it's just 
someone says, look, if you're willing to pay me enough money to buy a piece of my firm, why not? That doesn't work for us. We need to understand why someone's doing something and understand the motivation and really check it out and make sure that we're comfortable with how it's going to work. And then if someone's leaving the firm, we always use what we call the Jenga block sort of principle where, you know, you want to make sure the piece of wood that's coming out of the pile isn't the one that's going to collapse the house. So we need to understand the culture. Is it a team process? Typically, the people we're investing with are quite introverted. They're not the kind of the egotistical personality types. They're team consensual cultures. And so we just want to make sure that we're not going to spoil the business by doing the deal. And then we have a lot of protections in there around, you know, what they can do. You know, if we invest in the firm, we leave them alone most of the time because if they've been successful, we want to carry on being successful, but they can't suddenly go and take over a competitor or lever up the business or, you know, start decide to go part-time and start working in a farm or something or other. You know, there are various controls of what people can do. So yeah, so the downside is significant and you need to know what you're doing. And I think that's where the 20 years of experience that we have as a team comes in handy. Our, our audience is insurance investors. You'd mentioned a relatively, well, not a relatively, a significant uh, run rate income. Can you talk to yep. us a little bit about what the return profile looks like, your expected return profile? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're doing deals at multiples that are generally below where people would believe the market is at. You know, that's not because we're, you know, bottom feeders or buying bad business. It's just that, you know, we recognize the fact that generally our sellers are valuing not just the money, they're actually valuing the complete package of someone that's a long-term investor, that's going to be intelligent, that's going to be a thoughtful addition to their shareholder base. So that means that, you know, typically we're looking at first year yields, you know, even after fees and taxes are generally in the high single digit range, you know, because you think about asset managers, when they're at scale, most of their profits convert straight to cash. You know, they don't have a lot of um, inventory. They don't have, you know, R&D spending written off over 20 years. They don't have fixed asset purchases. You know, they've got a computer system. It works very well. They bought it five years ago. It's still working. They upgrade it every year. You know, 95 to 99.9% of the profits come out as cash and management get paid and you know staff get paid and the bonus pool gets paid and whatever comes out at the end comes to us and the other shareholders and we as a point of principle we are always an equity owner right we don't take preferred or we don't take fixed revenue share because we think that incentivizes people to behave badly so that's essentially what we do and it does produce a lot of cash i mean it is a very very cash generative strategy and actually pays out sometimes quarterly because if you're investing in in us partnerships they generally pay out quarterly because the tax is due quarterly so you pay the partners quarterly so not only is there a nice level of income yield that over time will grow, but it also comes out quarterly or half yearly fairly regularly. Over time, what we do is build a portfolio of eight to 16, 17 different investments. So not only have you got a nice high yield, but you've also got it coming from infrastructure, private credit, real estate, equities, bonds, insurance, linked securities, OCIO, LDI. So you've got a blend of geographies, a blend of asset classes. You know, so give an example. You know, an investment in an ILS manager, as we've done in the past, is a terrible investment when there's a hurricane and a windstorm. But in a year when the equity market is down 45%, it can actually be a great investment for you because it's completely uncorrelated. So we like those type of things. And so not only is there a high yield, but there's also a nice diversified base of income coming through. I have one more question for you and it has nothing to do, well, kind of does, kind of does. So I'm going to take you back to a day that I know you remember. 
This is the graduation from your undergraduate institution. And regardless of the festivities and revelry that may have occurred the evening before, you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your cap and gown. And your name is kind of middle of the alphabet, so you don't have to wait terribly long. And they, they call your name, and you, you start out across the stage. Now, the crowd, the crowd is going bananas, as you would expect. You get a quick photo with the president or provost of the educational institution. They hand you your diploma, quick photo op. And as you walk across the stage and down the stairs, you meet yourself today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? Well, that's a good question. I think I would tell my 21-year-old self not to get too put off by short-term setbacks. You know, so, you know, in my career, some of the things that I thought were great opportunities that I lost out on turned out to be bullets dodged. And quite often, some of the unpromising meetings I attended, you know, that I thought were a waste of time turned out to be the best meetings of my life. So I think I would always say to back myself and to always say yes to an opportunity, at least so that I can see what it's worth. That is great advice. John Little, founder and managing partner of Alderwood Capital. John, thanks for being on. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Thanks very much to our audience for listening. If you have ideas for a podcast, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.